0: And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod.
1: You know, the election in November is huge and everyone's focused on it, but as soon as it's over, you better believe we're going to start hearing from a parade of Democratic candidates uh, running for president in 2020. So no rest for the weary voter, particularly in places like Iowa and New Hampshire, And one person who's visited both those places recently is Steve Bullock, the two-term governor of Montana, a Democratic governor of a state that Donald Trump carried by 20 points, a western state, not a coastal state. And that has people asking, could he have the special secret sauce that can help Democrats win back some of the voters that uh, they lost in 2016? Governor Bullock came by the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago last week, where I sat down with him to ask him about his life, his career, and his plan. Governor Steve Bullock, great to be with you. Sure, great to be
0: with you too, David.
1: Here on the campus of the University of Chicago. Just spoke to a, a mob of kids, uh, of young people. I shouldn't call them kids because they're not. Uh, of young people from uh, the Institute of politics around the Institute of politics so so happy to have you there. Um, let me talk about you as a, as a kid uh, from uh, first uh, from Missoula but really from Helena Montana was how long back how long ago did your family come to Montana how they get there
0: So my parents met at uh, college in Colorado at it- at the time, it was Colorado State Teachers College, and my father's first job was in Missoula, so that took us. So to, they weren't
1: Montanans.
0: They were not. Uh, my mother was raised in Wyoming, uh-huh. principally, and my dad had kind of moved around quite a bit. Um, but yeah, their first trip uh, was post college when they moved to Montana. Uh
1: huh. Yeah. And um, and you grew up in in Helena, as I mentioned delivered newspapers to the uh, to the governor's mansion. Yeah, I had... Uh, so it's a little different in Montana than it is in some <laughs> other states. You can't just walk up to the governor's mansion and drop a newspaper on the... Well, you
0: still pretty much can in Montana. And yeah, I, I grew up uh, four blocks. You guys
1: still have newspapers there, right? A, a lot of places don't.
0: I, I still uh, <laughs> read my Helen Independent Record first thing every morning with a cup of coffee. But, yeah, grew up about four blocks from where I'm raising my family now and uh, raised in a single-parent household, but one of the summer jobs... When did
1: your folks uh, split? Uh,
0: my parents divorced in about fifth grade. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Do you have
1: brothers and sisters?
0: I have one older brother. He's three years older than I, so uh-huh. it was he and I's uh, paper route, so we delivered sort of both to the governor's house and all over the Capitol complex.
1: Uh-huh. And... Um, and your folks were educators.
0: Yeah. Yeah, my my uh, father had worked first as a distributive education, a DECA teacher, and then worked at the alternative school. My mother had an education degree, uh, had taught kindergarten uh, when they were still together, but had taken time off. Uh, and then when my parents divorced, and she found had to find herself back into the
1: world of work was it how was it difficult for you them splitting up
0: you know it's it's um i think today it's almost not that unique but in the late 70s to be in a single parent household headed by a woman like that wasn't my friends uh you know so it was substantially different in that respect and um it wasn't uh you know, there were just the economic struggles that any single parent head of household uh, has and still has today.
1: Um, You, uh, one of your uh, friends growing up was uh, Griff Williams, the the son of Pat Williams, the longtime uh, congressman from Montana. You only have one. And uh, uh, so how did this... Politics bug bite you. Was it early as early as back then?
0: Well, it, it's funny because I often say my first door-to-door experience was yeah, Pat Williams' first campaign in 1978, and it, his theme was door-to-door for Congress, Pat Williams for Congress, and Carol Williams, who ended up a force in her own right, she was a minority leader of our state senate, but Pat's wife. Made Griff and I peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, so that sort of got me on the road. That going. was all it took to get you to go <laughs> yeah. door to door. Huh? Yeah, that that got me uh, door to door and engaged, but got a little bit engaged more in sort of both the student government and was on the uh, state board of public education as a student representative. Ah. At the same time that you know Reagan's Nation at Risk came out, so got involved in sort of the education side of that, but sort of real politics or in the political system, not until a bit later.
1: And you went to you went to college in California?
0: Yeah, I ended up um, – I was looking mostly at University of Montana. That's where all my friends were going. Uh, my mother did research and was trying to figure out where it would be good. So she found a small college outside of Los Angeles called Claremont McKenna. Yeah, sure. And I went
1: sight unseen. Why um, Why did she think that would be good for you? You know, I I think
0: maybe just – I did okay in high school, but I never took academics that seriously. You know, I was more interested in the activities outside of school. So mm-hmm. maybe just also to get me out to see more of the world. Um, she found that place. And so I ended up applying to two schools, University of Montana and Claremont McKenna
1: College. So that must have been a culture shock moving from Helena, Montana to just outside of Los Angeles? In so
0: many ways. I mean, I'll never forget, yeah, showing up that first day and all of the swim pools were outside. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's not so, I think I've been, at that point in my life, probably been on a plane three or four times. And it was a culture shock in as much as that I'd met, first time ever meeting kids that had gone to, you know, prep schools and had every advantage in the world. It took me about uh, probably six, seven months Maybe not even that long to recognize what incredible public education I received and what I was given to build off of in Montana could make me, you know, academically as good as anybody else.
1: And what did you what did you study? What did what was your interest?
0: Yeah. In? So so there was a it was an interdisciplinary major called politics, philosophy, and economics. So and the professors all worked together. There was only about twelve of us. In it, so it was a liberal arts major, and what we would do is, like, you'd write a paper, you'd have one of the teachers is based on sort of a tutorial. One of the teach or one of your other students would critique your ideas and rip it apart just in front of the professor, and all three of the facets of it um, were sort of all interrelated. So when you're learning about uh, philosophy, you're also learning about political philosophy and economic philosophy.
1: Uh, well, that. Uh, having having your classmates rip your paper apart must have been good preparation for politics.
0: It, it was great. It was actually... Well, it was great because also at the time, and they've gone quite a ways, uh, but CMC was viewed as very... Actually, like a lot of the political science faculty was out of the Reagan administration. My thesis reader, who's still a good friend, a guy named Jack Pitney, uh, worked for the National Republican Committee. So... I had to figure out what my values and perspective was, and I had to defend it, but also in a way that was, you know, respectful. and that So it really helped me along the way. And that it's I'm over 30 years out of college, but still keep in touch with both professors and others from there. So it was a great experience for me.
1: And you took a, a, a break after college. Uh, tell me you spent three years kind of bumming around. Well, what, what were you doing?
0: Yeah, you know, for some – reason I decided uh, in grade school that I wanted to be a lawyer. I don't think I knew any lawyers um, but I had this vision that a lawyer could not only um, do good and impact people's lives but probably make a little bit better living than anything that I ever knew. So I decided from grade school I wanted to be a lawyer and was prepping. I took the LSAT like all these practices and um Come test day, I mean, I failed the LSAT miserably. I still have my bubble theory that I wrote it all one-off, but I don't think I was qualified to watch Law and Order the way that <laughs> I failed it. So my all my plans in life, I'm going to go to college, I'm going to go to law school, got put on hold. So I decided to work for a couple years. Um, first I went to – I interviewed in New York. That was way too much for me. I wanted to go east, get out of Southern California. Ended up at a sort of investment slash.
1: Why, why was New York too much for you?
0: You know, for a guy from uh, Montana, um, and then had spent time in California. It was. I actually did talk to some folks at Chicago, but it was just probably too intense. Too. I just didn't think that. Subsequently, lived in New York, but didn't think that that would be the place for me. But Philadelphia in the late eighties. Where I ended up working was blue collar friendly. Mm-hmm. You know, you'd meet your neighbors. You could go out. There weren't concerns. So that's where I ended up for two years. I uh, work in a sort of an investment firm.
1: And then you ended up at Columbia Law School.
0: Yeah, I ended up. Uh, I, I took it's pretty the, good law school.
1: It worked out okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah, I ended up um, taking after that time in. Uh, Pennsylvania. I was back in Montana for a little
1: bit, but then went to Columbia. And you kind of, you gravitated toward state and local government law, and you you had mentors there that were?
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, Like Professor Brafal and others, though, I kind of worked my way through college and borrowed my way through law school. I mean, I came out of law school with a hundred and some thousand dollars of debt and had this great idea I was going to work Pay off those loans, then decide what I wanted to uh, do. I guess do and be when I grew up. But
1: um,
0: <laughs> while I was there, my father got stage four lung cancer. Uh, so decided that if I'm ever going to kind of make everything right there, it's probably time to move home.
1: And that's how I ended up in. The but church. you say making things right, you know, re- repairing your relationship, or growing your relationship. Yeah,
0: yeah. That hadn't lived with my father uh, since fifth or sixth grade. Probably never even spent a night at his home. Um, he was always a part of my life, but not like, you know, he, he was a friend. Mm-hmm. Wasn't always a father necessarily. So uh, I knew that it was terminal, and I could stay on my plan in New York, working at firms, paying off my loans, or move back home. And I chose to move back home and took care of him and did some things like that.
1: And that led you to, uh, to government?
0: Yeah, the interesting thing when I was going to move home, um, if I went to a private firm, I wouldn't have even been able to pay pay my monthly law school loans. But if I went into public service, um, Columbia would cover my loans while I was in public service. So that's what I started briefly. I had a stop at the as chief legal counsel, the secretary of state's office, but then went over and worked in the attorney general's office.
1: And And... What, what other than that, it you could pay off your loans, what about it appealed to you?
0: You know, it, it was both um, working in the attorney general's office was such an amazing experience, like an eye-opening experience for me because whatever that vision was as a fourth grader, or fifth grader, of, that you could do good in law, you could impact people's lives, I fundamentally got to see that while working in the Attorney General's office. I did everything from some youth in need of care cases, you know, abuse and neglect cases, to working on the legislative agenda, to some constitutional issues. And the great thing about working as an AG is so much of being a lawyer is looking backwards. I mean, what happened in this incident, you know, in litigation? In the Attorney General's office, you can also look forward, how can you meaningfully impact people's lives?
1: And uh, are there particular cases uh, that you worked on, or project you worked on that that moved you, that stuck with you, that said, "Man, I'm. Well, this that, is why I'm here."
0: Yeah, that's you know uh, one case. So there, it was the Mountain States Legal Foundation, which was a conservative group, had sued to get rid of our stream access laws, and Montana has. The best access laws in the country, meaning that anybody can, as long as they stay within the watermarks, can access all the streams of our state. So, you know, you can't shut down people from using these. And to me, as somebody that also grew up outdoors, and like this is one of the things that makes Montana unique. So, I was in federal court, I'm um, three years out of law school, and saying, my name is Steve Bullock. I represent the people of Montana. The rivers and streams belong to all of us. Now, it's heady enough and to be able to say, I represent the people of Montana, which mm-hmm. is pretty darn cool. But to then be able to take that case, and we won. I'm like, this attorney general job is the greatest job out there. Um, so that's what really kind of got me. Thinking about that and on that path,
1: and you were so moved by the experience that you decided to run for the office, <laughs> like you you just you just joined the choir and you decided to run for choir master. I, I,
0: I was so moved by the experience that um, I decided when I was thirty two or thirty three, like this is the job I want, so I ran for it and, and got your ass kicked. I, <laughs> I, I got. I got my ass kicked. I got, uh, ran against a guy who's also, I'd say, a good friend now. He's the Chief Justice of the uh, Montana Supreme Court. But, yeah, I'm not sure that even my whole family voted for me. <laughs>
1: yeah. Well, uh, I asked you when we were talking to the young people before, uh, what did you learn uh, from – you know, people always talk about what they've learned from winning. Yeah. But my experience has been that you can learn losing. a lot from losing
0: yeah, and I often I think from I've learned more from setbacks in life than mm-hmm. the successes. and certainly at the time, I didn't wasn't sure that I learned anything other than I don't think I ever want to run for office again. you know, I mean I, some people might run because I oh, wanted to get their name out there, but I ran because I thought I could do a good job with it. But I think I learned a bit about both people and about campaigning that still stuck with me that. I mean Montana is a hundred and forty seven thousand square mile state, and when I subsequently ran eight years later that the way you win is actually to get out and engage with people and engage with people not just you know identified Democrats or but to get out and to listen and um you t- I, you
1: did take a break right in there after you lost you yeah. You went to Washington yeah, so, and practiced so, law there.
0: Yeah. So, so I got done running for office. I lost. I still had about $100,000 in debt. I'm married. And so I decided to move uh, to D.C. And I worked at a law firm and just taught as an adjunct uh, legal writing at GW Law School. So I got all my law school loans paid doing,
1: off. Doing what kind of law there?
0: Uh, it was litigation. It was so like the there was a case uh, six week trial that started three days after nine eleven, dealing with the construction of the Green Line, you know the subway system as an example. Mm-hmm.
1: So, the Green Line in Chicago? No, in mm-hmm. D.C. Oh, in D.C. Yeah, because your firm had a Chicago the, connection the as well. Chica- Steptoe John John Johnson
0: started a Chicago office. Uh-huh. Actually, while I was there, but the main office was I right on. I see,
1: and um, and and what made you go back?
0: So during that time, um, and I think you know, I was enjoying my work uh, at the law firm and surrounded by good people, and I could have saw that path along there.
1: Probably getting paid pretty well for once in your life. Paid
0: a heck of a lot more than I do right now, Um, but also we'd had our first child. And uh, during that time also, my wife's father got ill, and we knew that that's where we wanted to go. So once the law school loans were all paid off, moved back home and started that pinnacle of the legal establishment for a little while called the Bullock Law Firm. Uh So I went from like a 400-lawyer firm to being a sole practitioner.
1: Before, I I, want to ask you about that experience, but... um... This whole discussion of the student loans—they were that what to do about those loans was kind of a defining thing in your life. So this, this you know, you hear this all the time. I mean, I'm on a campus, uh, but as you travel around the country, this is a huge issue for people.
0: No, th- this is real. I mean, I mean, I showed up at Columbia Law School with a credit card and a pen to sign. Student loan documents. When I got out of Columbia Law School, I could have gotten forbearance even though I was getting paid pretty well because still, relative, my monthly student debt payment wasn't, um, you know, was more than what the income structures were. And to this day, I'll never forget the day that we paid off our last student loan. And I think when we look at the opportunities for the next generation, Just like the opportunities for me were limited in part, or at least defined in part by loans, that we got to be well aware of what we're doing with saddling kids with debt. Because even from that time, you know, I graduated law school in 94. I mean, the cost of a college education, the cost of all higher education has spiked a heck of a lot faster than the cost of living has.
1: So you had the solo practitioner, the the solo practice in in Helena, and you got involved in a uh, in a ballot measure, yeah, in, uh, in Montana. Yeah, so
0: so I was more or less out of the political system. Uh, I was being
1: a lawyer, and was the, it always in your head that you wanted to get back at some point.
0: You know, after losing that first time, mm-hmm. I don't know if it was, but like I don't know that that was what I thought my path ought to be. But it was that ballot measure in part, too. So at the time, minimum wage was $4.15 $4 in Montana. And in our legislature, it died on a very close vote to increase it. And uh, one of the legislative leaders said something like, now I don't have to lay off people with disabilities. Not recognizing that the vast majority of folks on minimum wage are single-parent head a household struggling to keep things together. It's not college students, it's not others. So formed this uh, group called Raise Montana, and by mostly volunteer effort, we increased the minimum wage. And that's kind of what got me excited and engaged, saying that, you know, you can impact this system, and you can make a difference. So that was, I think, 2006. Uh, 2008 was coming up, and
1: what well, what did you raise the minimum wage to? Uh,
0: at the time, we just raised it a dollar. So, but then we index it for inflation. I see. Yeah,
1: um, you know, there's this. This is an ongoing debate within the Democratic Party about uh, a couple of the issues we talked about: about college affordability and whether we should ask people to pay for college, about minimum wage and whether we should raise it to, say, fifteen dollars. Uh, an hour. I'm sure you get asked these questions as you uh, move around. And it, you seem passionate about these things. Are these viable answers?
0: Well, I think we have to, yes, in part, they're viable answers. Like I look at- since Which part? The, well, since the recession to, until today, like if we we're in Arizona right now, state funding for higher education has decreased 50%. On average, it's decreased in real terms, 17% across the country. Like my value has been I'm pleased that Montana has the fourth lowest cost of college for tuition and fees. And we're one of four or five states that's actually been increasing our investments. So figuring out how to make college affordable is important. Um, figuring out how a third of the workforce now is making, I think, 12 bucks an hour or less, 37 million people. And figuring out the ways to increase that, because that brings us all up, I
1: think, are essential. Um, What about the notion that we should make college, just as we made high school, uh, a universal right, that we should make college or some uh, corresponding technical training uh, a universal right in the 21st century? Well,
0: there's a lot more that we could be doing in as much as— yeah, we're about to the point, like in the early '70s, only a third of a third of the workforce needed something put past high school. By 2020, it's two thirds. Not everybody's going to go to college, first of all, right? And recognizing the professionally recognized certificates and apprenticeship programs, and there are ways to move this along where we ought to do so. I think that making it affordable is essential. Making it free. I think we'd have to figure out both the dollar, you know, the way to fund this, and also that there was a part of me having to work through college, pay part of the bill that made it so it uh, is—I so appreciated what I was getting along the way. Mm -hmm. Now, that's—what's been changing is the increasing, increasing, just inflating costs of college— we've got to figure out ways to make it more affordable and accessible. And that, I mean, the transition plan may be well for, and some states are looking at this is putting in $2 for our two year institutions last dollar in meaning that after Pell grants and everything else that the state would cover that. Mm -hmm. But the overall goal of saying that college has got to be accessible and affordable for everybody that so chooses,
1: um, yeah, I, I mean, it's. I it, think it's a capstone. It, but all, it is a. It is. It it strikes me that but uh, I, in our times, um, given the importance of education or training for the jobs that are emerging in this new economy, if you price people out of it, then you're really going to exacerbate this problem we already have of income inequality. Uh, you know, you're you're going to be destined to live. The, in the class in which you're born.
0: I think that's true. I think also though Democrats sometimes make this mistake that everybody's got to go to college. Mm-hmm. And there are, like, we've pushed, while well, I've been governor, a lot on work-based learning and apprenticeships, making our two-year colleges not even about an associate's degree but about a professionally recognized certificate, realizing that there are a thousand different apprentices jobs. It's not just welding, though welding is so important, and figuring out how we can partner to actually get people the skills that they need. And that doesn't necessarily mean all the time a degree.
1: You uh, you ran for attorney general. You you finally won the job that you wanted. Three-way primary. I wasn't supposed to win, but I ran for attorney general. Yeah. And you got elected by a small uh, margin. And in the general. And there, one of the things that you grapple with was another major challenge confronting our country, which is the issue of, of drug addiction. Um, tell me about that and what, the whole.
0: Yeah. Well, it was interesting because having worked in the AG's office eight years prior, like I knew the Division of Criminal Investigation folks, I knew the the drug cops and others. And more and more of them, when I was thinking about running, were saying the issues aren't just meth anymore, it's now prescription drugs. And then when we looked at it, the amount of deaths occurring because of prescription drugs and because of fentanyl was overwhelming everything else we had. So I started running on, that was part of my campaign to say, we have to address what was, I called the invisible epidemic. And it was amazing wherever I went and somebody would come up with a personal story of yeah, it, it is it is an
1: epidemic yeah. that's just cut through our our country and particularly in in rural areas yeah. and you know it's a, it's a siege
0: yeah it it's and it's a public health issue but we approached it then I mean it's interesting because if you look at our highest fatality rates for prescription drug abuse were probably two thousand nine or two thousand ten and we're actually. Decreased it where all the Why? other states. Yeah, I, I think we took a multifaceted approach. First of all, we educated people, saying that prescription drugs, um, well, they have a very important role. You know, they can also kill people. So the education piece—that just because comes from a doctor, it's not safe. We tried to remove the supply.
1: Um, you also established this electronic drug registry to make it harder to get these pain pills. Yeah, the registry
0: so that the pill, you'd have essentially pill seekers going from doctor to doctor to doctor. Then there was a registry that showed where... You know, if someone was just pill seeking and is supposed to legitimately in need, then we could shut that down. We did a lot of prescription drug take backs. I'll never forget one of the first because people hang on to the drugs. There were break ins into houses just to get at your medicine cabinet. A nineteen fifty-two glass pill bottle, somebody turned in and said, I didn't know what else to do with it. So we worked on law enforcement education, getting rid of supply, and working on treatment issues as well.
1: And um, you uh, you also you, you were uh, in the attorney general's office when at the—we uh, were just coming out of this mortgage crisis, but you probably were touched by that as well.
0: We were. We were and was part of the multi-state efforts on the mortgage. Um, and then once we reached a settlement figuring out how to try to—and the flood was in Montana just like everywhere else—how to get people to be able to stay in their homes um, and talk about moments of crises that you saw all over the country in places like Montana were equally impacted.
1: What, what made you—did uh, you, did you know from the time you ran for attorney general that you'd turn around and run for governor? Not at all. Not at all. I mean, I'd run for office to become
0: attorney general, not uh, necessarily to ever run for governor. And had had, in addition like that work, we did some great work as attorney general on— um, corporate money and politics and was so excited about that job and it was interesting because well then my predecessor was termed out and i had a lot of people saying oh you have to run for governor yell it to us and at first like no i wasn't supposed to win for attorney general i don't know what to anybody to run for something else and I made a lot of lists saying, you know, the pros and cons of giving up a job that I love. And I think it could have got reelected for one that I might not get elected to. And I don't know if I'd love. And ultimately, I kind of reached the conclusion that Montana was a gift for me growing up. And it truly was from the schools to the outdoors. And now as a father with kids, do I, I want to keep it a gift for them. And there were more and more sort of the efforts to both from privatizing schools and sort of this is as the anti-government forces were getting greater and greater that I thought, okay, maybe I need to do this. How old are your kids? Uh, I now have a 16-year-old daughter named Caroline, a 14-year-old daughter um, named Alex or Alexandria, then a son who turns uh, 12 on October 2nd named Cameron.
1: How, uh, you know, we rarely talk about this, but how have, how have they uh, fared through your political career? <laughs> yeah. They've grown up with you in public life. Um, and, you know, I, having worked with people in yeah. politics for a long time, I think the, the, the sacrifice associated with that is not oh, yeah. always well understood.
0: Yeah, you know, it's, and it had been 40 years in Montana since kids, the age of the kids that my wife, Lisa, and I have were part uh, living in the governor's residence. So it certainly shaped how I approached many things. On the one hand, each of my children got to have dinner at the White House and meet President and Mrs. Obama. And uh, my oldest daughter, Caroline, Went to the inauguration and rode a horse down Constitution Avenue. So have had incredible experiences, yeah. but it's not without a share of challenge as well because, you know, living in the bubble of being the governor's kid.
1: And, you know, when I was uh, a reporter, uh, there was a congressman, Paul Simon, in in, in Illinois, who wanted to run for the U.S. Senate, and he wanted me to go to work for him. And um, we had three children, one of whom was sick, and, uh, I, and my wife was very reluctant, and I said and, and he said, well let let gene he his wife, and I come down and talk to you about it." And my wife said, "Well, what's it like when you're you know you're, you're in politics for the kids?" And Jean said, "Well, it's kind of it's a mixed thing. you know, on the one hand, Martin, that's their son, uh, got to sit between Walter Mondale and yeah. George McGovern at a on a dais at a dinner. And she said, "On the other hand, his father wasn't around much when he was a kid, yeah. and uh, they left." And my wife closed the door, Susan, and she closed the door, and she said, "That doesn't sound like <laughs> absolutely a, not. Doesn't sound like a very good <laughs> trade-off." So I had um, a
0: rule um, when I became attorney general that as long as I was in town, I'd go home at six o'clock. We'd have dinner as a family. I'd stay there until my kids were asleep, and then if I had to go back to work or do things. Certainly, and that's as long as I was in town. I still have that same rule, but usually I get home at 6 o'clock. And
1: They don't want to da- see it.
0: Well, our daughter's at volleyball practice. Yeah. The son's playing football, yeah. and it's like, I'm
1: the only one home. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a good excuse to get out of work anyway. So um, the governorship, yeah. this issue of money and politics, this has been uh, a, a big issue of yeah. yours that you've uh, fought from, from the beginning. Uh, talk to me about that.
0: Yeah, and the history of Montana was a history of corporate control. We had these Copper Kings, they were called. I mean, Clark County, Nevada is named after William Clark, who was one of the Copper Kings. And they literally bought, around the turn of the century, um, all of the offices that we had. I mean, William Clark bought a U.S. Senate seat and was, you know, went out there and he was in a committee and he said, there's so much money and politics now that people don't even vote so montanans finally took back their state passing the corrupt practices act of 1912 and it said the corporations couldn't spend or contribute in our elections as a result elections in montana always low contribution limits and um elections were about talking to people it wasn't how much money you raise it's how many doors you knock citizens united comes up i'm attorney general we wrote the amicus brief that the majority of states actually joined on the friend of the court brief, including Republican states, saying that if you're going to screw with our campaign finance system, recognize the vast majority of elections actually happen at the state and local level, including our judges, and it doesn't take a copper king or a coat yeah. co- brother to buy, can buy judges cheaply yep, so we lost that, and then Montana the meaning that. Citizens United decision came down, and I was sued on the Crupper Acts Act of 1912. Every other state said, game over. We actually built a factual record. Citizens United had no factual record. And we had Republican testimony even on the corrupting influence of even the threat of independent expenditures. We wanted our state Supreme Court level. It was the first case after Citizens United to go all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court. And on a 5-4 decision, 100 years of Montana history was summarily disposed with the dissent saying even our experience since Citizens United demonstrates that we
1: need to revisit this issue. You've got got two uh, competitive elections right now, one for the Senate and one for uh, the House. Uh, And I imagine that you're a great deal of money is being spent on your Your, your television stations are probably doing well uh, in this. What, what is the impact of all of this?
0: I mean, it, it, it is disastrous from my perspective. Now, at the state level, even with a legislature that's two-thirds Republican, got passed a bill that said if you're a dark money group, so if you're a group that doesn't report your contributors, if you're going to spend in our elections – in the last 90 days, you have to disclose those donors. So even when I was up in 2016, the last mailing against me by the Koch brothers or Americans for Prosperity was 91 days out. So it can be done at least to add transparency and at the state level. Um, But I think what we're seeing more and more, you know, Being out on your campus today and hoping that these college students understand that there's one day every two years that we're all equal, and that's election day, and our vote is our voice. And I've seen elections close enough, as I'm sure you have, that every vote matters. And I think, in part, all the money coming in... in
1: 2016 nationally where 80,000 votes over three states uh, Tipped the presidency in two thousand when you were oh, yeah. when you were uh, losing your race for attorney general. There was a presidential race that was decided by five thousand seven hundred and thirty-seven, right. I yeah. think, votes in Florida. Yeah. So and, yeah, and,
0: and what we're seeing with all this outside money is, and the vast majority of it spent on negative ads as well, is that I think it adds to the polarization. It also adds to the disenfranchisement of folks saying. My participation doesn't even matter. This is all about money. And that's, I mean, I think it's a real threat to this experiment called representative democracy that's so important.
1: Though uh, no indication that the court is likely to move off of that with, you know, we, we, we may, as we speak, we're, and I will talk about this in a second, there is this uh, uh, debate as to whether uh, Judge Kavanaugh will ascend to the bench, but he's certainly not going to. Uh, Tip the court in favor of a rollback of Citizens United. There's nothing in his history that would suggest that.
0: No, I I think that's right, and I think it's unfortunate. But then at least begin with the premise, and Citizens United said, well, we can do all this because with the advent of the Internet and everything, at least there's complete transparency, meaning that people will know who's trying to influence elections. What we've seen since Citizens United, though, is the rise of not just super PACs and individuals, but dark money groups where we don't know who's writing the check. Right. And I think that's an area where, like, in the state, not only did we pass that law, I did an executive order saying if someone's going to contract with the state of Montana. Um, they have to disclose they whether to they're disclose. donating And we sued teams. the administration, the current administration, the IRS, because they're now getting rid of the requirements of even getting – the names of 501c4 donors to the Department of Treasury. Meaning that the courts, unfortunately, has conflated corporations with individuals and money with speech. We may not be able to change that until we have either a constitutional amendment or a different court, but we can make differences in adding sunshine and transparency. It's just but one area.
1: I'm going to come back to money. Because I want I want you to explain to me how a guy from Montana uh, runs for president in this d- day and age, given the amount of money that's required. Not that I'm asking you <laughs> yeah. to announce yeah. here. Yeah. yeah, I don't. But, uh, but it must be something that— a guy you, from that, anywhere. They, they, well, so if you're from California, it's a lot easier. If you're from New York, it's a lot easier. If you're from one of the money centers— it's a lot easier uh, than it is. Uh, But we'll get back to that. You've... Talk to me about being a Democrat governor in a state. Donald Trump carried your state by 20 points. You expanded Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act and supported the Affordable Care Act. I assume you have an exchange as well? No, we don't. You're in the federal exchange. We use the federal exchange. And uh, you... uh, you officiated over a same-sex marriage. You, I mean, there there are many ways in which um, you are um, in that solidly progressive uh, category. You've also you, you your your uh, position has, has, has evolved on on guns uh, uh, recently. But tell tell me how you navigate that path. That uh, how do you survive? Uh, in a very polarized time, as a uh, a blue governor in a red, in a in a red state.
0: Yeah, uh, I mean, I guess I try not to begin with the premise that, well, it's a very polarized time. People still expect government to work. I mean, when I we mentioned how young my kids were, my first day of the state, I talked about the different noises of laughter that would be emanating from the governor's house, and let's actually as legislators and as governor, let's act like our kids are watching and learning from our words and deeds because they do. So I've tried to elevate the discussion overall in that way. I've said to people, I will meet you as legislators. I'll meet you at least part way if we can actually focus on what's good. Now, I still fundamentally believe in this polarized time that most people's lives are too busy to worry about politics. So by... And in campaigning, I go to places that it's not just where there's a lot of Democrats inside. I show up, I listen. I do the same in governing, for sure. I mean, we got Medicaid expansion through. In part, I'll never forget went to a town called Shoto, Montana, 1,700 people, and everybody in town knew I was going to be there because Americans for Prosperity had mailed that pictures of me and Barack Obama. But when the hospital administrator said was the first to speak and said, yeah, 40% of the people who walk through these doors don't have health care. And a county commissioner said, we lose this hospital. We lose this community. I mean, by listening and letting them speak, we've been able to get things done.
1: I, I presume when in uh, when you ran for re-election, um, you uh, released a, a statement. You were running against uh, uh, Greg Gianforte, who's now the— The congressman congressman there, uh, and he was attacking you on guns, and you released a statement saying Steve Bullock supports Montana's current laws when it comes to gun rights. He opposes universal background checks. He has expanded gun rights as governor, and he'll always stand up for the Second Amendment. That seems like a concession to the realities of your state.
0: Well, I I mean, I was Attorney General when the Heller decision came up, and I brought the state into it, and the Second Amendment is an individual right. And I have time and time again tried to say, where are common sense gun measures? I've signed some things. I've vetoed a bunch of things as well. Um, I think that there's more that we need to be doing, though.
1: Yeah, I mean, you lately you, you you've changed your position on universal background checks. Yeah. You've changed your position on the assault weapons ban. Uh, why did you change your position? Was that something that you've done to, in order to, to uh, make yourself more acceptable to a broader democratic electorate? Or no,
0: you know, I had. Um, so, and we're recording this. I guess what, like three or four days before, the one-year anniversary of the Vegas shooting. Mm-hmm. Uh, I went to. I was asked to speak at the March for Our Lives in Helena, Montana, and I'm like, no, I don't want to. But instead I went with my two daughters, and I listened, and I listened to these kids. I can't believe my son started middle school this year. One of his, I think it was by the end of the first week, he's telling me about the lockdown drills, and he's already learned the safest places in the school. I had challenges growing up. It wasn't challenges like this. So I think we've hit a tipping point where we've got to be doing more. And we can do more in ways that um, most firearm owners that I know, all firearm owners that I know, um, myself included, uh, we don't want these guns in the wrong hands. We don't want them used for the wrong purposes. So there's got to be, though, ways that we can – if we start looking at this public health issue more than just as an issue that completely divides the country, I think we can make progress.
1: What did um, – why did Donald Trump do so well in your state? And why did did Democrats lose in 2016?
0: Well, okay, to step back, uh, President Obama lost Montana in 2008 by two points. Mm-hmm. And he had also showed up there and he was present there quite a bit and had a real presence. I think we were there the night
1: before he flew into Denver for the convention. I, I, I remember because we were still trying to figure out what he should say in his, we were working the... <laughs> through the convention speech. So uh, we had yeah. a late night meeting uh, yeah. I think in Butte yeah. where we worked that through.
0: Yeah. but But so I think in part get to um, a lot of folks aren't feeling like this economy's working for them, right? When I say today only about half of thirty year olds are doing better than their parents were at age thirty. When I was growing up as ninety percent of thirty year olds were doing better. So the economy's broken and they look to the political system and they don't see it working. So I think that a lot of voters, and that's just not in Montana, said, well, D.C.'s not working. We need somebody that says, I will fight for you. And they believe that they would fight for them.
1: And uh, how much, how much of, is, is this a cultural phenomenon? Uh, you, you talk about people feeling alienated uh, economically. What about culturally? I don't. You know, Because the impression is that there's a sort of red state, blue state, rural, urban yeah, but, know, divide.
0: But if we're not – if Democrats aren't even talking to people in the rural areas, if we're not giving them a reason to vote for us, if we're not turning around and saying, you know what, I recognize you're not climbing the economic ladder, here are things that can be done. I mean I, I think it goes back more than cultural divides – It is sort of the economic divides right now. And if someone in rural Ohio doesn't think that the Democrats care about them or speaking to them, well, then they're going
1: to go somewhere else. Um, I mentioned uh, uh, earlier this battle over the Supreme Court. Uh, We may know the outcome of it uh, before this podcast uh, is aired, but... Um, what, what do you make of this? You used to prosecute cases or oversee the prosecution of cases. I'm, I'm sure sexual assault no, yeah. was one of them. Uh, I know you were busy today when the hearing was going on, but, um, it looks like there's going to be a vote and it's going to be some hard politics. Uh, and it's going to, you, you know, you, you, you talk, you minimize the polarization of the country, but this can be a pretty polarizing vote, isn't it? Well, I,
0: yeah. I mean, first, from my perspective, there shouldn't be a vote right now. I mean, when a woman comes out with a credible claim and a claim that she was sexually assaulted, that should be investigated. So I think it will be polarizing if folks don't take a pause on it. If the Republicans don't say, listen, let's actually do an investigation as we should. Um, we're talking about a lifetime appointment here. So I would always love to see ways where we're bringing down the polarization. But I, don't, beyond partisanship, I mean, if I am a Democrat or a Republican out in any place other than Washington, D.C., you'd like to think that folks would say, you know what? This is a very important vote. We should at least get all the facts.
1: But really what's happened is that uh, it has become like everything becomes um, polarized by tribe and party. And the argument that's being made uh, for Judge Kavanaugh is he's been victimized by, uh, by Democrats who surfaced this charge late. Uh, and uh, you know, he vehemently denies them. Um, you're right, there hasn't been a... So do an investigation, figure Mm -hmm. it out, right? I Mm -hmm. mean, as
0: opposed to talking over one another or saying I've been victimized,
1: just do an investigation. That's what we've done in the past. If it doesn't happen, what do you think the political impact of that is? And what is the impact on the country?
0: Yeah. I never suggest, like, I'm a pundit and no from the, that perspective, but I think that the impact on, um, the country when we're doing not only lifetime appointment, but, uh, a woman or women that have come up to sacrifice themselves and we're not even doing an investigation. I mean... Maybe it does make us more polarized. That's unfortunate. I think this will be one where people look back and say we probably should have.
1: Do you think it's likely to galvanize women uh, if the nomination goes forward?
0: I would hope so. I mean, I would certainly hope that uh, more and more women, but not just women too. <laughs> let me men. ask you, men, l- men too. No, of course, should be saying, no, you know. absolutely. Yeah.
1: But l- let me. Uh, Ask you, you you have a Senator John Tester. He's already uh, drawn the attention of the president who's been there and uh, beaten up on him. And probably will, I don't know, is he coming back?
0: You know, he's been back two times. I think the vice president's coming out again next week, so I wouldn't be surprised.
1: And one of the things when this nomination was made that people said was, well, these red state senators in states that Trump won are really in the crosshairs here and uh, run a great risk if they oppose the nomination. Do you think that's changed now because of what's happened with uh, Christine Blasey Ford?
0: Yeah, I think it could well. And I also think some um – Republican senators are saying, well, wait a minute, we owe our constituents a lot better than what this process has been. So I do hope that that's the case. And, and so and so you it,
1: don't think he's under the same pressure that he might have been to support the nomination?
0: Well, I think that, you know, Senator Testers, like they haven't even given him a meeting with Judge Kavanaugh yet. And I think Senator Testers is the kind of guy that, I mean— He will listen carefully and make a decision. Um, But what I've seen in the past with uh, Senator Tester is that he tries to figure out what's actually going to be best for the country and for Montana.
1: What what about you? You've been uh, traveling quite a bit. You're here in Chicago, but you've also been in other outposts like Iowa, New Hampshire—that to a political guy, that—that's like my ears get trained when I hear that. And it's no, no, no uh, secret. you were at the Iowa State Fair, I think. Yeah. Did you go by the butter sculptures I, and eat fried Twinkies? I and was stuff?
0: At the, on the soapbox talking about the corrupting influence of uh, money in politics.
1: Uh huh. Yeah. Um, how seriously are you considering running for president? I think that I know and and let's just stipulate cuz just in the interest of time that the, there's an intervening election that's important. Yeah. I'm sure you're campaigning for candidates, but that election's hard on us and then you're going to have to make a decision.
0: Yeah, I think that I have Look, I think I'm the only Democrat in the country to get reelected in a state where Trump won. I've been able to get progressive things done and show that government can function. So I think that I have something to offer to the conversation and as what we're stipulating in some ways then i've been out campaigning to try to get more governors and a few other congressional folks but i've also been listening not just in iowa but also places like arkansas and was in ohio for rich cordry yesterday Mm -hmm. and for me at least that's as far as it goes i don't know what i'll do but i think i have a the one thing that I don't want to do is wake up the day after the next election and say we're in the exact same position. So if I have something to offer that conversation, then it's worth
1: – how, um, how do you overcome the fact that you're from a very small state? Um, it's, it's not – it's an 88% white state. It's your, your state budget I think is, what, $6 billion or something like that. It's a small state. It's not a political base uh, of any kind and, and as we said earlier, um, money has become uh, so difficult in politics. How do you marshal a campaign starting from that place yeah
0: I'm, I mean first of all, I got to believe that it 's not just about money. I mean if that was the case, even on the Republican side, Trump wouldn't have become
1: president um, and I have to though so believe- he had he had celebrity i yeah. mean you're not taking over the celebrity apprentice anytime <laughs> soon, are you? <laughs> so. I
0: don't think we'll count on that, David. <laughs> um, I also think that, um, you know, I'm hoping that there'll be a lot of people looking at it in 2020. Um, I'm a governor. Governors actually have to govern, have to get things done. You know, we've seen, uh, you know, Senator Obama was in his first term before that. I think the last senator to get elected. JFK. Was, JFK then. Yeah. And, and then
1: Harding before that, I think.
0: Yeah. Come from um place the the West, which I think that has something to add to the con- conversation. But I don't you know, at the end of the day, um I mean first I gotta figure out do I have something to offer?
1: And well you just went through a few reasons that would suggest to me that you think you do.
0: I think I have something to offer the conversation for sure. I mean, I think that we as a party need to make sure that we can be competitive in places from Michigan to Wisconsin to Ohio to Pennsylvania. In addition to being competitive on the coast,
1: were you frustrated with a national campaign in 2016?
0: I was pretty busy with my own.
1: Um, I didn't, although that you had a vested interest in how. Well, yeah. the Democratic ticket would do. Yeah, yeah. I, when you heard Hillary Clinton—not to pound on her here—but when she said the deplorable thing and so on, did that impact adversely on on you and on uh, uh, on Democrats generally? Well, I, in areas like yours,
0: I think that—I mean—that at its core is that if there's a whole lot of people both in our country. Geographically, demographically, and others that say that the Democratic Party isn't the party that cares about whether I have a decent job or good schools or roof over my head. Then we're in a lot of trouble.
1: You think the party's too focused on urban urban areas?
0: Not not necessarily. Um, meaning that you know I then we talked about a little bit out side. Like Mm -hmm. I fundamentally believe wherever you live, most people want the same things. They want your safe community, a roof over your head, a decent job, clean air and clean water. The values, those are values that Democrats have traditionally been fighting for each step of the way. So the focus of not even showing up or having a presence in areas says a lot to people. The focus on the way that we speak and say, you know, Bill Clinton said, "I feel your pain." Right, that not everybody's doing better along the way, mm-hmm. um, and to have meaningful solutions for these issues. You,
1: um, you would be viewed as a in the pantheon of, of, can, of potential candidates as a, a more moderate candidate, more of a centrist uh, Democrat. You, you're comfortable with that label?
0: You know. I, I think that like, I'm not sure that everybody's already trying to slice and dice something a ways, kind of pit us against them or sort of these mentalities. I'm not sure that I buy any of that. Like I've been able to do progressive things in Montana. But I've been able to get things done, and I've been able to bridge some of the divides that we're seeing right, so in other parts you're not of the gonna country.
1: Buy, you're not going to buy into it. <laughs> I, can, I can see. I'm not going to go down this rat hole. So, uh, anyway, uh, what is your what what's your timetable for uh, making a decision? I don't
0: honestly have any timetable. When I do mean, you think
1: you have to make a decision? By you've got smart political people around that you talk to. What are they telling you?
0: You know, there hasn't been any. Like, I don't. I imagine immediately after the elections, um, some people are going to jump in and say, I'm running for pr- yeah, president. Yeah, sure I mean, Some already have. Yeah. Uh, that won't be me.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, but at some point, your decision is made for you if you don't step forward.
0: Yeah, I think that's probably true as well. <laughs>
1: okay. <laughs> Governor Steve Bullock, <laughs> it's great to be with you. Thank you for coming to the Institute of Politics, and good luck Thanks, David. in the coming months and years. Thanks so much.
0: Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. For more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu.